Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 38, The First Cracks in the Reign of Max. After marrying Mary of Burgundy in August 1477, the first thing Maximilian of Habsburg had to do was focus on stopping the French invasion of the Burgundian territories. This was, after all, the main reason why their union had been accepted by the various power bases of the Low Countries, most notably the States General. War requires money, of course, and Maximilian didn't really have any. Due to the constraints of the great privilege, he was limited in what options he had to get some. So his first recourse was to do what Flemish counts and Burgundian dukes had done forever and demand cash from the Flemish estates, which he did almost immediately after getting hitched. At first, they agreed to cooperate, but when he attempted to roll back the rights that had been gained through the great privilege, discontent began to grow and Maximilian found himself exposed to the ire of, you'll never guess where, Ghent. The conflict with France dragged on and Maximilian found himself embroiled in factional squabbling and uprisings closer to home in Gelders, Holland and Utrecht, as well as within the court. All of this meant that when Mary of Burgundy unexpectedly died in March 1482, conditions inside the pressure cooker which was the Low Countries were once again primed to blow its lid right off. We finished off the last episode at the wedding of Mary and Maximilian in Ghent on the 19th of August 1477. It has dawned on us that in the previous two episodes, we managed to cover a whopping eight months in our story. By my back of the envelope calculation, if we continue at that tempo, we will finish our chronology in roughly 1600 episodes over the next 15 and a half years. As fun as that sounds, we have decided to pick up the pace somewhat, so this time we will smash out a whole five years in one episode. So hold on to your hats. You'll remember that after the executions of Humbercourt and Huguenet, the estates of Flanders had attempted to organise their own defence against the marauding troops of the French king, Louis XI, by raising their own army and placing it under the command of the Duke of Helders, Adolf. But instead of gloriously fighting off the French and winning the Duchess's hand in marriage, Adolf had seen his Flemish army feud amongst itself and then fall apart upon first contact with the enemy, with Adolf dying in the process. After this calamitous failure, it was pretty clear that the only option left was to give command of the military situation back to the ducal court. So upon his arrival, Maximilian was enthusiastically greeted as the saviour everybody hoped he would be, a gallant and brave prince who would help bring peace back to the Low Countries. A sign displayed during his arrival into Ghent said, quote, You are our duke, our military strength for battle. All that you tell us, we will do. End quote. Maximilian himself no doubt reveled in the glory of it all. This episode is going to mostly focus on the international and domestic political and military wranglings which Maximilian dealt with throughout the period of his and Mary's joint reign over the Burgundian domains. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of all that, it's worth spending a minute or so to discuss the details of their marriage and their personal relationship. As we have seen time and again, marriage between the elite nobility in these times was first and foremost a political act intended to bind two often competing dynasties together in their common interest for a mutual benefit. 
This one was no exception. The thing about these political marriages, however, is that being married off to someone you don't know, who comes from some faraway place you've probably never been to, and who doesn't even necessarily speak the same language as you, isn't exactly a great recipe for a happy relationship. We saw this when Isabella of Portugal moved herself away from the ducal court after the blow-up between her husband, Philip the Good, and her son, Charles the Bold. She chose to support her son over her philandering husband, who slept around so much that he could basically field a cricket team from his illegitimate children, plus substitutes. Isabella ended up living the rest of her life away from her husband. The marriage between Charles and Margaret of York was somewhat similar. It wasn't unhappy per se, but when she didn't produce babies for him, he just didn't bother seeing her much anymore. The same was the case for Maximilian's parents, the Emperor Frederick I and Eleanor, who had famously clashing personalities and generally limited the time they had to spend with one another. But Mary and Maximilian's marriage stands in stark contrast to this. In a private letter to a friend of his, written a few months after the wedding, Maximilian told him, quote, I have a lovely, good, and virtuous wife who fills me with content, for which I give thanks to God. She is tall but slender of body, much smaller than Di Rosina, a former love interest of his, and Snow White. She has brown hair, a small nose, a little head and face, her eyes brown, tinged with grey, beautiful and clear. The mouth is somewhat high but well-defined and red. My wife is a thorough sportswoman with hawk and hound. She has a greyhound that is very swift. It sleeps generally all night in our room. End quote. So, to put it bluntly, he found her good-looking and was happy that they had similar interests like hunting and falconry. Even the fact that they shared a bedroom was pretty uncommon for the time. In her biography of Margaret of York, Christine Waitman says that, along with the dog, Mary also brought her falcons into the bedroom a couple of nights after the wedding, which raises many questions that we are not going to delve further into in this podcast. Essentially, Mary and Maximilian were young and attractive, they learned each other's languages, and just seemed to have genuinely liked each other. After the wedding, Mary handed over the business of running the state to her new husband, and she, again putting it bluntly, got busy with the most crucial task which was expected of her, which was to bring an heir into the world. The whole reason why Charles the Bold's death had been such a cataclysm for the Valois-Burgundian dynasty had been that Charles had never had a male heir. The States General had been trepidatious about the idea of this foreign prince coming in and taking over, but they agreed to the marriage between Maximilian and Mary on the condition that, in the event of her premature death, only their future children would be able to inherit the various lands, titles and possessions which she held. Mary had promised that this would be so, and their marriage contract, which had been approved by the estates, had spelled it out. But less than a month after the wedding, on the 17th of September 1477, Mary secretly issued an act which edited the marriage contract and removed those clauses pertaining to the inheritance. According to this version, which was signed and sealed by Mary, Maximilian, and Margaret of York, if Mary died without a child then Maximilian would inherit everything. As it would happen, none of this would eventually matter since Mary and Maximilian would not face this problem. The couple would go on to have three children in their five years together. Two of those children would survive into adulthood, and crucially, the first would be a son. But still, this early move definitely shows that, despite having been weakened, the ducal court, and especially Maximilian, was not necessarily going to passively accept the wishes and interests of the estates just because a piece of paper had been signed saying that they would. Almost as soon as the I do's were said, Maximilian got to work. The first thing he needed was money, and finding more and more of it was something he was going to continually be required to do over the next five years. As we saw last episode, one of the reasons why Maximilian had taken such a long time to get to the Low Countries was because he was pretty much broke and had apparently run out of cash partway through the journey. If the estates and ducal court had hoped that marrying the Habsburg prince was going to bring some extra financial clout to their side, 
they were sorely mistaken. Three days after the nuptials had taken place, on the 22nd of August 1477, Maximilian asked the Estates of Flanders for a sum of 500,000 ridders to help cover the costs of the defence against France. You'll remember that only the previous year the Estates had balked at Charles the Bold's demands for cash, and they'd refused, laying the pathway towards one of their key demands in the Great Privilege, that the Duke or Duchess would not be allowed to raise taxes or wage war without their explicit consent. But... When they had approved Mary's marriage to Maximilian, they had also promised that they would do what was necessary to help defend the country from France. As military preparations were made, a legalistic dance ensued between Maximilian and Louis XI. On the 27th of August 1477, Maximilian formally requested that Louis XI return the Burgundian lands he had taken, firmly positioning himself as the heroic defender against the French aggressor. Although this did not happen, on the 18th of September that year, Louis XI did agree to a ceasefire. Perhaps the older king was wary about this new energetic prince arriving on the scene, or maybe he was conscious of not wanting to repeat the mistakes of his late archenemy Charles by pushing his armies too hard and stretching them too thin in territories with a populace that clearly did not want them to be there. Whatever the reason, Maximilian was given a little bit of breathing room, and the fighting would not resume until the spring of 1478. In December 1477, Maximilian's financial demands were finally met by the states of Flanders. It seems like, on their part at least, in this early stage of their relationship, the states were prepared to stick to their word and cooperate with the new duke. Maximilian himself was no doubt frustrated that he could not simply take the money that he deemed necessary and that it had taken so long for them to come to consent. A couple of months later, in February, Maximilian then made a move straight from the Charles the Bold playbook and requested more money, this time to hire more troops, specifically a group of 5,000 Swiss soldiers. Although surely they were irked, once again the states of Flanders agreed. By March, the fighting had resumed and the French had reached as far as Ronza in Flanders. By summer, the French were ready to take Cambrai under the leadership of Philippe de Crevacroix, who, you may remember, had been a lieutenant of Charles the Bold at Nancy. He was a knight of the Golden Fleece, but had since defected from Burgundy to Louis XI's side. This French offensive on Cambrai failed, and at this point, Maximilian could launch a counter-offensive of his own. This involved an army which included thousands of Swiss and German mercenaries setting off from the French Comte, Imperial Burgundy. It was led by a high French noble called Jean de Chalon, who had previously supported Charles the Bold rather than Louis XI. He was the Lord of Arles, and I mention him because he carried a fancy, but later to become much fancier title, the Prince of Orange. His attempt to take back Burgundy was, unfortunately for Maximilian, a failure. According to Comines, this is largely because the Prince of Orange was in it more for the reward than because of his loyalty to Maximilian, and the French were simply too powerful and too rich for his mercenary troops to resist them. Louis XI then set about putting a grand scheme into motion, essentially buying off the Swiss and undermining the Burgundians by taking out various pillars of their support networks in the south. Following this, on July 11th, Burgundy and France agreed to a one-year armistice, and Louis XI promised to remove his troops from the parts of Flanders and Hanau into which they had already breached. While this was underway, Maximilian attended his first chapter of the Order of the Golden Fleece. In the chaos of 1477, the Order had been devastated. Twelve of the thirty members had died, including its sovereign, Charles, and five of its members had defected to the French side. Louis XI had made suggestions towards holding a chapter of the order himself, no doubt wishing to take over the sovereignty of this illustrious chivalric group. But instead, in an elaborate public ceremony at Bruges on April 30th, 1478, Maximilian was first ordained as a knight by Adolf of Cleves, the Lord of Ravenstein, and then inaugurated as the Sovereign of the Order. 
the survival of the order and Maximilian's legitimacy as the true successor of Charles was emphasized in the speeches, the services, and the ceremonies. A mourning procession for the late Duke Charles was held, including a white horse carrying Charles's golden collar that wound its way through the streets of Bruges to the St. Saviour's Church, where the collar was symbolically laid at the altar. Following that, Maximilian was brought in, everybody changed out of their mourning clothes and got into their ceremonial garb, and the chain was placed around Maximilian's neck. Historian Sonia Dunabal wrote of it, quote, The act took place less on a political level, but rather on a social level of superior importance. This splendid celebration stood out as the highlight of the time of initiation, demonstrating that the crisis had been overcome and that it was time to return to normality, and also demonstrating that celebrating festivals was possible again, after all. End quote. Maximilian was firmly positioning himself on the public stage as the rightful successor of the deceased Burgundian Duke. Not long after the truce with France was finalised, the union between Burgundy and Habsburg was cemented when Mary and Maximilian welcomed their first child into the world on the 22nd of July, 1478. It was a boy, and they called him Philip, after his grandfather, because, you know, why not just keep choosing from a list of like five names. Anyone worried about another complicated succession because of a non-male heir must have breathed a sigh of relief. The birth of a male heir provided Maximilian with greater political stability in the realm, as well as a new political weapon. Even though his son was only an infant, he was instantly one of the most eligible bachelors around, and just as their parents had done to them, Maximilian, and to a lesser extent Mary, could and would utilize the prospect of marriage to the heir of both Burgundian and Habsburg entitlements. The eyebrows of monarchs and other rulers around Europe must have lifted with curiosity upon hearing of young Philip's birth. Most would have run various scenarios through their heads that included how their own daughters or sisters might fit into the calculations of his future matrimony and whether such scenarios could enhance their own positions of power. King Edward IV of England was just such one. Even though Margaret of York had been persistently entreating her brother to jump in with Maximilian against France, the English had remained noticeably disengaged with the escalations of this war. Edward, however, had a daughter, Anne. With the birth of a male heir to Burgundy in Austria, there was now an extremely enticing reason for him to change this policy in the future, encouraged, of course, by his sister, the Dowager Duchess Margaret of York. In September 1478, for the first time, Maximilian called a meeting of the Estates General, once again with his cap in hand, to once again ask them for more money. In his book, Monarchy, States, Generals and Parliaments, H.G. Königsberger outlines the bleak financial situation which the ducal administration faced after all the calamities of the previous year. Their income from their domains had collapsed by 90% compared to that of Charles the Bold's time. As a result of selling off the rents from their lands to raise quick cash and because of all the new privileges which had been introduced. But on top of the costs of the war, the non-military expenses of the court were still astronomical, especially because in order to keep them loyal, they were paying huge pensions to the upper nobility, such as the Lord of Ravenstein, Adolf of Cleves. The States General maintained that Maximilian should pay for the troops he needed himself, and he kept dismissing their complaints and demanding more and more revenue from them regardless. Does that sound familiar? The stalemate would continue until fighting resumed the next year, when the states eventually agreed to once again stump up the cash. In July 1479, the truce with France ended. The result of this, on the 7th of August, was the only major battle of the conflict, which happened in Artois, outside the town of Guinegate, which is what we call it in Australian. In French, I guess it's called Guinegate. It's sometimes alluringly called En Guinegate. We're going to stick to Guinea Gate. In this engagement, it is reckoned that around 25,000 Burgundian troops, nobility, and Swiss and German mercenaries faced off against around 11,000 French troops and nobility. 
the Battle of Guinea Gate was nowhere near the biggest or most calamitous battle in European history, nor one which necessarily changed the tide of geopolitical history. Guinea Gate is, however, remarkable, and for more than just sounding like a scandal involving a rodent. As we know, Burgundian forces had only three years earlier been intensely involved in a campaign against the Swiss. We did not really go into this in previous episodes, but over the previous couple of centuries, Swiss troops and mercenaries had been employing the use of long-handled pikes, and they had developed the military formation of the Pike Square, sometimes called the Igel, which means hedgehog. This formation was generally 10 rows of 10 men standing in a square, all 100 of them holding really long, stabby pikes. The men were trained to move as one and point their pikes in whatever direction was necessary, making them extremely difficult to attack. The men who found themselves at the front of the square would know to kneel down when needed, allowing the pikes of their brethren behind them to protrude over their shoulders and into their enemies' faces. Under heavy assault, say by cavalry, they would jam the butts of their pikes into the ground in a coordinated fashion, essentially creating a terrifying wall of stabbiness. Since the middle of the 14th century, wider European military tactics had absorbed and expanded upon the English use of longbows, but the utilization of the pike square helped to counter this as the strategy at the core of its use was to move quickly, aggressively, and as one big unit towards enemy forces, overtaking archers with shock and awe. It was upon encountering such formations, which could also link up to form an army's entire front, that Charles's forces had met defeat in Merton and Granson and their wintry demise outside Nancy. Although Charles the Bold's armies had been destroyed, there were many nobility and military commanders who had fought in those wars, yet had survived to return to Burgundian service. One of these was the Count of Romont, one of the sons of the Duke of Savoy, who became a military advisor to Maximilian. At Guinea Gate, they decided to structure their forces up in massive squares, emulating the Swiss Eagle Park Square. When the battle started, at first, the Burgundian left flank was hit hard, which caused many of its knights to flee and expose everyone greatly, but the French troops took the opportunity to chase after these fleeing knights, which caused their own line to dissolve. They were then mowed down by these Burgundian Swiss-style hedgehogs of death. Philip de Comines wrote of it, quote, the Duke's foot kept their ground, though they were vigorously attacked, having with them on foot 200 gentlemen, all good officers and brave men, and among them the Count de Ramont, a son of the House of Savoy, the Count de Nassau, and several others who are still living. The bravery and conduct of these gentlemen kept the whole body together, which was very much after the defeat of their cavalry. The King's Frank archers fell, plundering the Duke's wagons and all that attended them, some of the Duke's forces rallied, attacked, and cut off a great number of them. On the Duke's side, the slaughter was greater, and more prisoners were taken, but he remained master of the field of battle." End quote. So it was that Maximilian and the Burgundian forces won the only large-scale battle of this war. It is, however, pretty widely recognized that, after this, the Swiss Pike Square formation became a staple measure of continental military tactics for at least the next 200 years. It would only be in the late 17th century that bayonets, coupled with quicker loading times for muskets, would lessen the impact of the pike square. So, there you have it. The first foreign use of a Swiss pike square military formation. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Following his success at Guinea Gate, Maximilian faced growing pressure by Flemish power brokers, especially the city of Ghent, to put an end to the state of warfare, which they had now been enduring and paying the costs of for over a decade. They had agreed to fund Maximilian's army on the grounds that he was defending Flanders from troops, which had been causing so much devastation due to their incursions from the neighboring provinces. It can hardly be surprising, though, the Maximilian's priorities were more focused on 
increasing the glory of Habsburg honour and expanding his dynastic domains. He was adamant that he would retake Artois and Picardy back from Louis XI and gave greater heed to this than paying regard to the demands of his subjects. As for Louis XI, well, he was now in his late 50s and in a state of physical decline. Irregardless, he had always proven way more adept at and willing to engage in underhand political manipulation against his foes rather than outright warfare. So following the Battle of Guinea Gate, the competition between King and Duke continued, but no more direct and major battles occurred. Instead, Louis XI set about putting more energy into undermining Maximilian in more insidious ways, such as fomenting and supporting unrest and anti-Burgundian slash Habsburg sentiment in Helders, Luxembourg and Liège, some of which we are going to touch on in the second part of this episode. Team Burgundy-Habsburg, however, were also working hard on undermining Louis XI. In 1480, one particular approach began to yield results. As mentioned, Margaret of York had been working hard on convincing her brother Edward IV to forsake the Treaty of Picogny, which he had signed with Louis XI in 1475. In August, Edward finally agreed to this, and he then also renewed the treaty which he had made with Charles the Bold the year before that. To help Margaret get Edward to reach this agreement, Maximilian basically put the same temptations on the table as Charles had earlier tried to force down Edward's throat. In his book, For the Common Good, historian Yella Hammers wrote of the diplomatic process in achieving this. Quote, an instruction of Maximilian to his representatives in London reflects the overweening ambitions of both Maximilian and Edward IV. The Habsburg prince encouraged the English king to join in the French war, because this would not only prevent French dominance on the continent, but also lead to English invasion of France. The Burgundian court would recapture its lost territories, and the English king might win the crown of France. End quote. As we repeatedly keep coming to, the best way for rulers to further weave their tentacles into the dimensions of political power was to have children and to marry them off to the best prospects. The birth of their first son, Philip, in 1478 had helped to strengthen relations across the Channel, and a part of the Anglo-Burgundian Treaty was that the young Philip of Burgundy would marry Edward's daughter, Anne. More importantly for the immediately pressing issue of French aggression, this arrangement included a dowry of 100,000 crowns, as well as a contingent of English archers that would soon be arriving on the Flemish shores, along with 2,000 English pounds to pay for them. This alliance understandably infuriated the French king Louis XI, who then sought and brokered an alliance with the king of Scotland, as well as those anti-Burgundian elements of the Low Countries in whose ears he was already whispering. A balance of power settled over Western Europe, which, while it did not end the Franco-Burgundian War, still made everybody just sit back a little. But it also opened the door for Maximilian and his new ally, Edward IV, to then extend their alliance to the Duke of Brittany, Francis. The Dukes of Brittany had long maintained a similar autonomy from the French king as what Philip the Good had achieved for Burgundy. Maximilian and Francis had a mutual interest in defying Louis XI, and in April 1481, they agreed to give each other military assistance. Francis had a daughter, which he also called Anne, because that seemed to be the nom du jour of royal princesses. She too would become a majorly used pawn in international political maneuverings of the future. Mary and Maximilian had also not wasted any time in making more babies, in January 1480, Mary gave birth to a second child, this time a daughter, Margaret of Austria, who will become rather important later on in this whole story. By the time that Maximilian and Edward IV were courting the Duke of Brittany's alliance, Mary was expecting their third child. He was born in September 1481 and was christened Francis after the Duke of Brittany. Even while his second son was in utero, Maximilian harboured the hope that he could arrange a marriage between this child and the Duke of Brittany's daughter, Anne. Another candidate for the hand of Anne, however, 
was the son of their other ally, the English king, who was also called Edward. In the end, within their anti-French alliance bloc, it was this pairing that was agreed upon, and it was tragically to be consolidated when the baby Francis died at only four months old. It is interesting to ponder, though, where the course of history may have ambled had young Francis lived and eventually become the Duke of Brittany. See, the French kingdom had now been ruled for decades by the manipulative and autocratic Louis XI, but, spoiler alert, he was very soon going to shake off this mortal coil, and France is about to enter the usual precarious period of political power plays that accompany dynastic transition. How would things have played out if, at that point, France had then also been encircled by Habsburg rulers to their west, north, and east? with the English as their ally? Well, the answer is... Terrible. And speaking of terrible, there's an ad break coming. Once we run through it like a big group of angry Swiss blokes with long pointy sticks, we will explore how Maximilian got the compulsory welcome to being the ruler of Flanders treatment, led by the ever intransigent Ghent, and how in Utrecht and Holland the hook and cod war intensified, providing another distraction for him to have to deal with. All of this meant that he could not just focus his energy on defeating France, but had to deal with an array of spot fires across the Low Countries. And we will see how all that unfolds after this. On a cold January afternoon in 1649, Charles I, King of England, Ireland and Scotland, was executed by his own subjects. His crime? High treason. This unprecedented act rocked the Three Kingdoms and the fledgling British Empire, and followed ten years of rebellion, revolution and civil war. Pax Britannica, a history podcast on the British Empire, covers these incredible events, complete with interviews with world-leading experts on the period. Find Pax Britannica everywhere you find your podcasts, or go to pod.link slash pax. Welcome to Welcome back. By 1480, Maximilian was coming to understand the complexities of ruling the Low Countries. His foreign policy dealings were conducted without consultation of the States General, upon whom he was continually having to lean for ever more money. Rather than negotiating an end to the war with France, Maximilian still aimed to retake Artois and Picardy, and so had stopped short of peace, only agreeing to an armistice. By the second half of 1480, the city of Ghent, in particular, had become so disillusioned with Maximilian that they accused him of failing to live up to his promises. The war was no longer about national defence, but rather it was now an offensive war for a prestige project by Maximilian. They detested what they saw as his autocracy in conducting foreign affairs without any consultation of the estates. Maximilian and Ghent's relationship broke down so badly that the richest city in his realm now refused to pay any more financial aid to him at all, and even stopped sending any representatives to meetings of the states of Flanders, which were discussing his money issues. Considering that the terms of the great privilege required the state's approval for financial aids, and if they weren't there, they couldn't give this approval, this effectively closed the door on one of his most vital revenue streams. Maximilian's next move reflected his identification as a prince who should not be beholden to the demands of the lower classes, no matter how rich or privileged they were. He summoned representatives from the small towns around Ghent, which according to Ghent's privileges, fell under its jurisdiction. He ordered these towns to then pay the aids that he wanted to get from Ghent. Ghent swiftly sent its own representatives to remind these small towns of exactly what the privileges were, and the small towns were forced to concede. Maximilian would not get the money out of Ghent that way either. Look, economic history is not our favourite realm here at the History of the Netherlands. We barely understand our own finances, as meagre as they are, let alone the fiscal monetary policies of the administration of a complex and loosely federated late medieval political entity. But we are certainly glad that other people 
have spent years of their life poring over the receipts of the many different treasuries and chambers of accounts in Burgundy. If this is the kind of stuff that tickles your fancy, by the way, go and read Yella Hammer's book, For the Common Good, which goes into all of this with a fine-tooth comb. That being said, we cannot just skip over how dire the condition of Habsburg Burgundian finances were at this stage. So, here are the taxing facts of what Max lacked. Unable to get the aids he required from Ghent and other dissenting members of the estate, Maximilian was forced to pawn off jewellery and other valuables, force members of his administration to lend money to the state, and in defiance of the terms within the Great Privilege, he reintroduced tolls which had been abolished and sold off powerful officers to the highest bidders. But most importantly, he also took huge loans and got caught in a spiral of increasing debt. By the early 1480s, any revenue coming in from his domains was barely covering the interest that the state owed, let alone the debt itself. And so any money that was coming in was just going into the wallets of the bankers, nobles, and merchants who had given him these loans. It became impossible for him to meet the demands of his responsibility as a sovereign prince, a military leader, but also answerable to the state's general. Or as Hummers puts it, quote, Maximilian was caught in a complicated web of political and financial dependence on foreign sovereigns, merchants, and bankers, and on state officials bent on increasing their own power. In their quest for financing, the Archduke and his administration valued state financial interests more highly than maintenance of the privileges of 1477. End quote. In hindsight, Maximilian's broader issue in facing his financial dire straits was that he had come to power in a period during which this realm and its subjects were transitioning from living in a so-called domain state, typical of medieval feudal society, to a fiscal state, which would become more the norm in the mercantile-dominated centuries to come. Keeping financial viability while defending Burgundy against France demanded a centralized fiscal policy that could match what the French king could muster. Maximilian simply did not have a possibility of achieving this, and so he could be easily hamstrung by something as straightforward as Ghent simply refusing to cough up. And while the financial situation was bad for Maximilian, it was also making life for his subjects increasingly difficult. If you were just an everyday commoner, the leasing out of judicial posts meant that your chances of getting fair justice were increasingly slim, the taxes you were now paying were even worse than under Charles the Bold, and local powers that affected you personally were once again going to foreigners who had bought them. To make matters worse, the more than a decade of warfare hadn't ended, and all the fighting had degraded the food supply. When the Hansa city of Gdansk banned the export of grain between 1480 and 1483, and then crops in the low countries failed in those years, doesn't help having big groups of stabby angry men running all over your crops, then the price of grain shot through the roof. In Bruges alone, between 1476 and 1481, wheat prices quadrupled, and all of the discontent that this engendered was used by Maximilian's opponents to foster further dissent and dissatisfaction with his rule. But then there were other issues that Maximilian had to deal with closer to home as well. In the Northern Territories, various iterations of civil unrest that had long lain dormant below the surface of socio-political tensions now came to bear. As we mentioned in the previous episode, Helders had used the occasion of Charles the Bold's death to kick out ducal administrators and declare independence. After the gallant death of Adolf of Helders against the French outside Tournai, his son and heir, a young boy, was kept at the Burgundian court while Adolf's sister Catherine ruled as regent in his stead, in opposition to Maximilian. Her uncle, William of Egmont, who was pro-Burgundian and had actually helped Charles the Bold conquer Helders in the first place, sought to displace her and return Helders to ducal rule. In 1478, William of Egmont took the city of Arnhem and joined forces with the Duke of Cleves 
but their alliance was unpopular and unable to find much support within the populace. In Zutphen, the Bishop of Munster, Hendrik von Schwarzburg, was declared as the guardian of the county. In 1479, Catherine, the regent of Helders, then agreed to a peace with Maximilian. But the next year, as part of Louis XI's plans to foment further dissent around the Low Countries, she agreed to an anti-Maximilian pact with the French king. She went to France, expecting to find some kind of material support from Louis and not just words, but must have been disappointed to find that none was forthcoming. She'd obviously never met Louis XI before. Even though Louis didn't want to help Catherine, he was interested in helping himself. So when their truce expired, as Maximilian was busy in Helders, French troops then went and took over Namur and Luxembourg. Maximilian's armies were able to conquer more of Helders throughout 1481, and when the Bishop of Munster just bailed from Zutphen in 1482, there weren't really any other options open for Catherine than to agree to a peace with Maximilian again. She was permitted to live out her days in a place called Geldown, but would continue to support the idea of her nephew, Charles, one day reclaiming his position as an independent Duke of Helders. At the same time as all of this, Maximilian also found himself mixed up in the hook and cod factionalism that was surging once more in Holland and, by extension, in Utrecht. You might remember that the Great Privilege had stipulated that stud holders of territories, the governors, must be local to those territories, and by this right, the previous Stadtholder of Holland and Zeeland, Louis van Groothuizen, had been replaced by the Zeelander, Wolfert van Borsela. The rising cod embitterment in Holland was fueled mainly by a perceived increase of hook partisans in powerful positions. In The Hague, angry cod partisans had ransacked the palace of the Stadtholder, and when van Borsela, new to the job, found out he got the sooks and became a committed hook. With little to lose, the Cods then went and took over towns like Leiden and Amsterdam, banishing hook partisans from there. Some of those hooks then made their way to Utrecht, which had itself kicked out the Burgundian Prince Bishop David of Burgundy during the upheavals of 1477. They had then appointed a guy called Jan van Montfort as Hoeftman, who was sympathetic with the Hooks in neighbouring Holland. By 1480, Maximilian was clearly frustrated with all of this internal squabbling going on, so he replaced the highly partisan Hook Stadtholder of Holland, Wolfert van Borsela, with someone he hoped was probably more neutral in this conflict, a man from Hanau called Josse de la Lange. The thing is, though, that as a foreigner, Appointing de la Lange as the Stadtholder of Holland and Zeeland was in fact a violation of the great privilege. Again, Maximilian was showing his willingness to just step on the terms which Mary had consented to. At the beginning of 1481, a group of Hook supporters, with the help of sympathetic Utrecht nobles such as Jan van Montfort, their Hoeftman, conducted a stunning raid in Holland on the city of Leiden. The story of this raid is covered in 18th century Dutch historian Jan van Wagenaar's epic Vaderlandse Historie. During the early hours of the morning, a group of just over a hundred men, some of whom had been expelled by Cods two years earlier, as well as many from Utrecht, and who were led by a man from Gelders named Rainier van Bruckhuizen, were able to scale the walls of Leiden in silence. Once inside, they stabbed the sentry to death, then climbed on top of the town hall and announced their arrival. Then they broke into the town hall, took a bunch of the most important COD administrators of the city and made them prisoners. Good thing that doesn't happen anymore. At some point in the confusion though, a bunch of gunpowder which was being stored in the basement of the town hall was ignited. It exploded, destroyed the building and killed around 40 people in the process. Cod towns like Harlem, Delft and Amsterdam heard about what these hooks had done to their cod counterparts in Leiden, were extremely unhappy about it, and began to pressure the new stud holder, Josse de la Lange, to deal with the hooks. 
De La Lange's forces were then able to wrest back control of other Hook-dominated towns, which had supported the events in Leiden, such as Dordrecht. In an attempt to take Dordrecht from the Hooks, COD troops were smuggled into the town's harbour in broad daylight by a sympathetic insider, hidden inside two boats and covered with supplies, like a floating Trojan horse boat. They completely caught the town off guard and began rounding up and arresting Hooks. At some point, they came across a group of important Hook officials, which included the mayor of Dordrecht, Gilles Adrianzoon. In the confusion of the surprise attack, Adrianzoon, as the mayor, had wanted to get ready to confront the attackers as quickly as possible. He had reached for his helmet, but instead, by accident, he grabbed a copper pot and put it on his head. So when he came face to face with the attackers, it was while wearing this pot on his head, which is delightfully ridiculous. The COD troops, unfortunately for him, didn't take pity on this pothead mare before them, and he and several others were beaten to death. Although De La Lange and the CODs were able to take back Dordrecht and several other important towns, he wasn't able to take Leiden without the help of extra troops that Maximilian sent to him. Finally, after a two-week siege, Leiden capitulated on the 14th of April 1481, Maximilian personally went there three days later to deal out large financial punishments to the city. However, most of the important hooks who had initially taken over Leiden were actually able to escape back to Utrecht. There they found refuge with Jan van Montfort, this Hoftmann that had been elected to lead Utrecht. Despite this though, Maximilian had effectively given power to COD-dominated urban power bases across Holland, which would come to benefit him in quite a few years down the line when, surprise surprise, he would go looking for more money from them. But at the same time, in this deeply partisan struggle, the basis of which pretty much boiled down to, Hello, I'm a hook, you are a COD, and you killed my father, prepare to die. Maximilian had put a stake in the ground and gone on the cod side, dangerously alienating the hooks in the process. The factional warring which had bubbled up in Holland and now spilled out over its borders into the neighbouring provinces continued on. Just after the recapture of Leiden on May 14th, the city of Utrecht, probably nervous about the fact that a vengeful Maximilian was so close by, quickly reconciled with their deposed Bishop David and he was allowed back into town. But then, on the 7th of August, Jan van Montfort, this elected Hoftmann, may be feeling emboldened by the arrival of the extremist anti-Burgundian hook exiles from Leiden, once again led a coup in Utrecht, chased away his opponents and those urging peace, and once again took control. The city of Amersfoort also joined in with this hook-led rebellion against Maximilian and the Burgundian puppet Prince Bishop. The city of Utrecht once again refused to let David of Burgundy enter the town. So once again, he was forced to take refuge in his castle at Wyk by Durstede. This marks the beginning of a three-year civil war in Utrecht, which we will of course touch upon in a future episode. But before we move on, we do want to quickly mention one of the early encounters of this conflict in Utrecht to give a quick taste of what this war was like. After again being kicked out of Utrecht, David of Burgundy then sent a message to Maximilian, who was hunting in the Veluwe, asking him for help. Maximilian sent him a contingent of troops, led by a basket noble, Jean Salazar. Salazar had first been in the service of Louis XI, but later defected to Charles the Bold, and then joined up with Maximilian, for whom he fought during the Battle of Guineagate. Salazar and the bishop's troops totaled around a thousand men, and they were directed by David to go and plunder the countryside around the rebellious town of Amersfoort. They embarked on a four-day mission from Vake by Durseda, headed towards Amersfoort, and raided said countryside. Sounds kind of jolly when you put it like that, but must have been absolutely awful for the farmers who had to deal with a bunch of armed men going around, burning down their homes and stealing their cows. According to a chronicle of Utrecht written by Antonius Matthäus a couple of hundred years after the event, they were able to steal about 1,500 beasts, big and small. Which is kind of confusing. We presume he means cows, sheep and pigs, but he could also just mean 
big cows and small cows. Of course, the hooks in nearby Amersfoort could not just idly sit back and watch their enemies taking their cows. The mayor of Amersfoort, Jan van Vestrenen, rang the bells of the town, gave a rousing speech, gathered together a group of about 400 men, and led them out with their banners to confront the raiding troops of the Bishop of Utrecht. The Amersforters were no doubt an inexperienced city militia led by their mayor coming up against battle-hardened troops. Unbeknownst to the Amersforters, the bishop's troops had actually split themselves into two groups. Salazar's men, who were leading the cows away, were actually there as bait, and the Amersforters chased them right into an ambush outside the town of Scherpenzeel, where the other half were waiting. The resulting Battle of Scherpenzeel, which took place on the 23rd of September 1481, ended in the resounding defeat of the Amersforters. Around 100 of them were killed and another 200 or so were taken prisoner. The Battle of Scherpenzeel was certainly not a defining battle in the annals of European history, but for the people who were caught in the middle of it and whose communities were devastated, it must have been bloody awful. It is also just interesting to take notice that even though by this time most warfare was defined as an epic clash of kings and princes and rulers competing for the continent's pendulum of power to swing their way, often it was also just about one group of people stealing another group of people's cows. Dissatisfaction with Maximilian was rising, and not only within the estates and the citizens, but also within the nobility at the court. Adolf of Ravenstein had been an integral part of ducal administration since the 1450s, and Mary once referred to him as amongst, quote, our closest relatives, end quote. During the faraway military campaigns in Charles the Bold's final years, Ravenstein, along with people like Humbercourt, Huguenet, and Hruthauser, had basically run Burgundy. One could say that, by this time, Ravenstein had become a part of the very fabric of Burgundy's governance. As mentioned last episode, he had tried his best to get Mary, whom he would later refer to as, quote, the creature on earth he liked the most, end quote, to accept his son Philip as her husband. Although this had failed, when Maximilian arrived and took charge as a 20-year-old, high-born and egotistical prince, Adolf had still been there to welcome him and anointed him as a knight and made him sovereign of the Order of the Golden Fleece. He had even been given the honour of lifting the young heir, Philip, above the baptismal font. He had done very well out of all of this, being granted the fiefdom of Weinendale. He had also married well, landing other titles in Zeeland as a result, and he had come to own possessions all across the Low Countries, including residences in both Ghent and Brussels. He was what historian Jelle Hummers refers to as, quote, a member of supra-regional nobility, end quote. Basically, Ravenstein was a VIP. Yet, during Maximilian's early tenure, Ravenstein began to fall further and further out of his favour, largely because this was a case of a new young buck trying to build up a base of nobles loyal to him, rather than having to rely on these independent, hugely influential lords whose personal interests weren't necessarily aligned with his. Like Wolfert van Borsler, who had been removed as the Stadthalder of Holland and Zeeland, Ravenstein needed to shore himself up against the autocracy of the young prince. Van Borsler and Ravenstein actually found allies in each other, and they promptly arranged for their children to be married. Ravenstein was also the brother-in-law of Louis de Groothuyser, who himself had also been offset by the young prince. Together, these three would form the basis of a powerful alliance which would soon clash head-on with Maximilian. As Hummers writes, quote, For the first time in this century, the Burgundian nobility was divided and an important group of nobles had become alienated from the court. End quote. In the context of this shifting power dynamic, we can only speculate about what might have happened if Mary and Maximilian had been given a longer period of time ruling together. Perhaps they might have been able to steer the ship away from the rocks, which it was veering dangerously close to. But we will never know. 
because in early March 1482, the Lord of Ravenstein organized a hunt outside Vinendale Castle in which Mary and Maximilian both took part. As we are well aware, Mary was fond of hunting. She loved being on a horse, rocking around with her falcon, killing things. We have also known her since she was just a child, so please allow me the indulgence here of handing over to the words of 19th century historian Marion Andrews, who wrote under the male pseudonym Christopher Hare, and who, despite her work being extremely outdated and based more on the fantasy of Maximilian's biographies than the truth, still paints an amazing picture of this event that we feel does justice to what Mary's existence had come to represent. Quote, Early in the spring of 1482, on a bright March morning, the princely pair rode forth with a gay company from their palace at Bruges for a hawking expedition in the low-lying marshy swamps of the meadows which girdle the city. Here the herons are wont to congregate on the sedgy banks of the canals, and there was every prospect of excellent sport. Mary, full of eagerness, as she led the way, for her falcon had just struck a heron, put her horse at a dike. But he missed his footing, stumbled and fell, throwing his rider heavily to the ground. With no thought of herself, her only desire being not to alarm her husband, the Duchess made light of the accident, and it is doubtful if she received proper medical care in time. But in any case, the injury proved fatal. Within less than three weeks, the great heiress of Burgundy and its vast dominions, tenderly loved wife and happy mother, was to pass away, to the terrible grief of the bereaved Maximilian. Overwhelmed with despair, he had lost all self-control in her sick chamber, and broke down with such heart-rending sobs that poor Mary herself had to implore him to leave the room and compose himself. End quote. Mary's death would suddenly throw the Low Countries into yet another constitutional and succession crisis. Yes, Mary and Maximilian had two living children, but their heir apparent, Philip, wasn't even five years old. Mary and Maximilian's wedding contract, which had been approved by the States General, had ensured that Maximilian would not be allowed to inherit the Burgundian lands. But in the weeks between the riding accident and her death, Mary had sufficient time to get her affairs in order. As she lay on her deathbed on the 24th of March 1482, she had her testament adjusted to say that Maximilian should be given the guardianship over their children, meaning that he would rule as Philip's regent after her death. She gathered the most important nobles and members of the Golden Fleece around her bed and made them swear oaths of allegiance to her husband. But what this meant was that when Mary died three days later, the Low Countries were left with two legitimate but competing claims about what should then follow. Would Maximilian be able to establish his regency, or would the many enemies he had made in his five years jointly ruling with Mary take the opportunity that this crisis presented to them to rid themselves of the autocratic young Austrian prince? We'll find out in the upcoming episodes of History of the Netherlands. Thanks very much for listening to the History of the Netherlands. It's been a pleasure over the last couple of weeks to see positive reviews coming out on Apple Podcasts and comments on Twitter and Facebook and Reddit. Reading good things people have to say about us is literally our favourite hobby, so please feel free to continue with that. Whenever we are feeling vain, we like to envisage ourselves as glorious princes of history communication. And much like most real princes, we too often find ourselves broken, relying on the generosity of the estates. And by that, I mean Patreon, where listeners like you help us make the show by giving us financial aid, throwing coins into the coffers. You can choose to give as much as you want, the sky's the limit, and our gratitude is boundless. We would especially like to thank Gerard Jan Gerritsen, who has been corresponding with us and was extremely helpful in pointing us in the direction of resources and research which he had already done into the Battle of Scherpenzeil. Thanks a lot, Gerard Jan. Jez. Chez. We'd steal cows with you any day, mate. 
As well as to Jez, we would also like to pay homage to some others who have signed the great privilege of Patreon. These include Ilko, or Parling Beefay, as his friends know him in Dutch, Lady Niska, Madame, thank you very much, Vincent Big V Custerlein, whose donation continues his family's glorious tradition by shoring up our castle, and finally, Zachary Pass de Salt. You are the seasoning that our sauce needed. Thanks, Parsi. We are trying our best to get these episodes out every two weeks, but like everybody else in the world at the moment, we are flying by the seat of our pants. So if an episode doesn't come out on schedule, just remember that this show is being made by two extremely unscheduled and unorganized people, and it's amazing that we've been able to get as far as we have. And not to labor the point, but if you want to help us be more Dutch, that is to say more reliably on time with episodes, Patreon. You can also find us on Twitter at HistoryOfNL. That's all for now. Dank jullie wel. Doei! Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.